Pushkin. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings, Chris Christopherson. Before they were legends of outlaw country, they were lost souls looking for their sound. Don't miss Mandy Moore in the new scripted Audible original, The Boar's Nest, Sue Brewer and the birth of outlaw country music. Discover the true untold story of the extraordinary woman behind the outlaw country music movement and its biggest stars. Hear how one woman's vision and her tiny living room, far from Nashville's Music Row, became the epicenter of a musical movement. Mandy Moore as Sue Brewer in The Boar's Nest. Listen now at audible.com slash the Boar's Nest. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Hey, everyone. Today, we're taking a step back from our usual broken record content to take a deep dive into the making of the music-rich score of another show at Pushkin, Bad Women. The first season of Bad Women focused on reconstructing the lives of the five women killed by Jack the Ripper. Now the second season is out, and it centers around a murderer every bit as terrible as Jack the Ripper, the so-called Blackout Ripper. I speak with sound designer Pascal Weiss and jazz guitarist Ed Gawkin about how they evoked the atmosphere of the time. Nightclubs and jazz bars in wartime London, 1942. We listen to the songs Pascal and Ed recorded for the new soundtrack and talk about their process for creating them. And at the end, they treated us to a nice performance. Here's my conversation with Pascal and Ed. And check out Bad Women Season 2. Hello, hello, Justin. Pascal here, who's the composer, sound designer. And I'm Ed, so I kind of got the band together for the Bad Women session. So yeah, Pascal's playing trombone, Ed's playing guitar. I'm now talking about myself in the third person, like yeah. James Brown. <laughs> Thanks so much for doing this, guys. Appreciate it. No, not at all. Pascal, maybe you want to talk a little bit about um, Bad Women. For sure, yeah. Well, Bad Women is the second season of a podcast which began explaining and understanding the lives of Jack the Ripper's victims. And it was very much a refocusing of that story. I mean, that's a story that's now what? over a century old, but even in my youth, terrified me. And I was a yeah. continent away and, you know, whatever, 80 to 100 years removed at that point. But infamous serial killer yeah. uh, who stalked London streets and took women of the night as uh, victims, right? Well, that original series was uh, really 
alongside an incredible book called The Five, written by the presenter of the show, Bad Women, Hallie Ribbenhold. And this book completely refocuses the story of Jack the Ripper. It rests that obsessive attention on the killer himself, which, of course, has created this in- this incredible, how can I put it, you know, sort of boogeyman story that people endlessly pick over and, and get very obsessed with the idea of who he might have been and all the rest of it. And what happens is that the victims who had interesting lives are just completely overlooked and it's become a sort of comfortable way to kind of write off some of the victims of saying, you know, well, you know, they were sex workers and um, there's almost a hidden kind of wink there saying, you know, they were, they were somehow morally, uh, you know, we could abandon them. But actually they had really interesting lives. And what Halley really wanted to do with the book and then with the podcast that came after it is just rebalance that whole tale. Let's look at the women. Let's look at the amazing and interesting lives, what they had to deal with. And let's stop obsessing with the idea of, you know, Jack the Ripper and uh, and who he may or may not have been. And of course, one of the most, in some ways, shocking revelations that you get when you dig into the story in, in those terms is that that central piece of information that almost everyone carries around about Jack the Ripper, i.e. that his victims were prostitutes, is, turns out to be completely untrue. They weren't. That's the sort of setup in, in Bad Women season one. And in season two, there's some DNA from that that gets carried forward. We are talking about a killer and we're talking about a killer of women, but we're moved now to Blitz era London and... The killer is um, an RAF officer. And again, the focus is very firmly on who were the women, what were their lives like, and what was it like, you know, existing as a woman in those times, you know, you were helping with the war effort, and, you know, very difficult for people to imagine or conceive of our heroes, you know, doing anything so grotesque. So again, we've ported from Victorian London through to Blitz-era London, and we're dodging in and out of clubs in Soho and uh, and hence the more jazz themes that, that, that come up in the show. Right. So season two, we're in World War II era London and a Royal Air Force officer is the killer. And of course, the theme that continues on from season one is refocusing the framing of the story from the killer yeah. to the women who had their lives taken from them. Exactly. Giving them something back. Yeah. Yeah. And, and understanding you know, the times they lived in and the particular pressures, because, you know, all of that gets lost when you spend your time obsessing over forensic or otherwise details of, you know, who, say, Jack the Ripper was, whatever, you know, this stuff just gets lost, it gets swept away. And in so, in many ways, it's it's much more interesting because it gives you a really interesting snapshot of how lives were at the time and the journeys people made, and particularly women in, in this case, you know, it's a very useful refocusing, I think. So that's sort of what you guys are tasked with, with soundtrack, <laughs> yeah. which is <laughs> an interesting, I don't know, it's an interesting opportunity, interesting proposition. What was the first thing you did when you realized you were going to be making music for this new season? Whenever I start a project like this, I have this romantic idea of taking long walks and planning and really kind of devising my strategy and and you know and sort of coming up with a a, gr- a grand concept and then inevitably what actually happens is life catches up with you and you just crash in there and you get on with it i'm a great believer in dumping myself into the middle of it and fighting my way out <laughs> you know yeah 
Yeah. With Bad Women in this season two in particular, there's there's quite a strong sense of place. I'm in, in the lucky position of also looking after the sound design on the show. And that's really interesting. And, and it's one of the things that's afforded to a degree by podcasting. There's a certain flexibility. You know, the the, the work patterns are not so ironed out, perhaps, as they are in, in other industries. So there isn't a sort of separate sound design department. I am that as well. So it really means that I can think about the sound design and the music as a as a whole i can get things to sort of talk to each other actually what i really started to think about first was what's london going to sound like at this time and didn't want to throw away the dna of the music from the first season you know we wanted that sense of kind of linearity of keeping some of the tonal work you know from the first show and bringing that forward so it really about trying to understand the kind of fabric of sound that sort of Soho and some of the places that we're diving in and out of in the show would have created. So actually, I think my first port of call was to start with some some sound design elements, you know, let's get the place alive. What do these clubs sound like? And it, and it throws up a really interesting conundrum, really, because, you know, a restaurant in 1942 wouldn't necessarily sound a whole lot different uh, how a restaurant would sound now. Um, but how do you somehow trigger in people the, the concept that they're being taken back in time? And in that sense, I think it's really interesting that one of the best ways to kind of fool people in that environment is to try and make the sounds almost appear to have been recorded back then. So slightly degrading them, giving that sense of that vintage sense. And I think it's really, it helps people be tricked back into that time. But going to the sort of music side of it, it, it became quite clear quite early on when you know looking at the scenes where we uh, in these bars and clubs of Soho of the time that jazz uh, was going to form a part of this the music they would be listening to down in these clubs the jazz scene of the time uh, which you know Ed will, will speak more about but in an environment where you're working, as we say, sort of in the business, you know, in the box, uh, you know, looking, looking, standing at a computer or sitting at a computer and devising this sound using a lot of virtual instruments and electronic instruments, it quickly became apparent to me that, you know, we really needed something real and human and alive and with all the cracks and the fractures and the mistakes and the, and the looseness and the vibe that that would have. And that's when we cooked up the idea that if we could manage this, can we record some tracks that would have been relevant to the era and try and thread that through the show? And I'm so glad we did it. Yeah, the music turned out great. Ed, can you tell me a little bit about the jazz clubs of World War II era London? Yeah, so it was a, you know an interesting time, 1942. One of the big bangs, if you like, in European jazz was the Django Reinhardt Hot Club of France thing. You know, uh, him and Stefan Grappelli and all those amazing kind of gypsy players that that were part of that scene. Can you play a bit of of, of what the Django Reinhardt sound is? He's got a huge guitar. Uh -huh. Is that not what Django would have used? Django played an acoustic guitar, a McAfee acoustic guitar, which we did play on the sessions as well. Myself and Christian, the other guitar player, were playing them on the sessions, but I can sort of have a go on this big arch top. So basically in the Hot Club of France traditional setup, you have, in Django's original model, you'd have two rhythm guitar players who'd be doing this sort of thing.
and then you'd have you know melody stuff going on on top and uh that was a huge thing in django was arguably the first kind of european jazz star do you know what i mean obviously the the music is american and, and and mostly african-american and always led by america and django reinhardt was the first european really to make a kind of any kind of impact on the world of jazz and he was huge in the uk the hot club of france toured a lot in the uk and actually in at the outbreak of the war i believe they were over here and django and the rest of the band his brother and his cousins there are them guitar players they all fled back to france and stefan grappelli got stuck in london so he was in london for the duration of the war and then of course in america in the early 1940s you had the beginnings of the bebop revolution charlie parker and dizzy gillespie and all those people which was the next sort of big seismic shift in in that music it didn't come as quickly to the uk because there wasn't you know like now obviously we have so many channels to access music and internet and whatever and in the early days of that music it was american servicemen who were bringing bebop records over to the uk and so you would have heard records in London clubs and I'm sure there would have been people that were kind of playing bebop but late 30s early 40s in the UK would have still been much more rooted in the swing swing era which is you know again that kind of four to the bar that Django kind of swing style and then you know or do um, I've got rhythm you know Whereas in America, in the bebop thing, that was starting to become more harmonically complicated and so you'd get more. So, you know, the music was changing very fast in America and in Britain, I think, it, you know, there was a slower uh, adopting of, of the more advanced harmonic and rhythmic and melodic concepts that were coming out of the bebop thing. Right. With bebop, they were trying to really deconstruct the chords in, in an interesting way. And swing would have just been, let me take this Gershwin song, I've got rhythm. Yep. And and, and 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 make it rhythmically interesting. I guess I would say it's yeah, totally. And and also, you know, adding extra chords to it, extending the harmony, which was a big part of the bebop thing. And uh, yeah, but you know, there were people. There was a, a bass player called Coleridge Good who was from the West Indies, who came to Scotland. Actually, first came to Glasgow in the thirties. Uh, so this is before the Windrush, which was the big emigration into the UK of Caribbean people in the fifties. So Coleridge came to scotland in the early 30s to study engineering and he was a bass player on the scene in soho at that time early 40s and he wrote a brilliant book called bass lines about his life as a jazz musician in the uk yeah he was certainly playing kind of swing and bop and what then would have been popular music you know because the swing that was the thing with the swing era stuff it was the pop music of its day it was the the hit parade music of its day people like benny goodman and those guys were glenn miller you know they were the kind of pop stars of their time so yeah i think london at that time there would have been a lot of different influences going on the start of the caribbean influence the start of bebop the swing big bands people like ellington had toured in britain from kind of the 20s onwards so yeah i think london was a you know probably quite an exciting exciting place to be as a musician in the early 40s what about the the electric guitar when was that yeah, the electric coming guitar in really and when was came it used? Charlie, i mean charlie christian was the first big 
kind of electric guitar star who was one of the in the 30s 40s yeah, well, in the 40s, 40s rather, yeah right. christian died in i think 42 he was really young he was like 25 or something he played in benny goodman's small band and he was arguably the first kind of proper bebop guitarist and there's a bunch of bootlegs of him playing at minton's which was the kind of hothouse laboratory of the bebop era all the musicians when they finished their gigs at the savoy and places would head to, to minton's to minton's playhouse and play after hours and like thelonious monk was the house piano player there and joe guy would turn up on trumpet and there's these amazing bootleg recordings it was some guy who was like an audio enthusiast brought in a I think some sort of eight track or reel to reel thing and just stuck it on a table and there's Amazing. these incredible well, records. And you've heard that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, they're, wow. they're so brilliant. And it and it's Charlie Christian really sort of ripping it up on standards, <laughs> things like Topsy and Honeysuckle Rose and stuff like that, and him just really going to town on it and kind of extending the the jazz vocabulary. And there's a, a tune called Swing to Bot, which is based on Topsy, which is an old standard. And yeah, and you can just you can hear him kind of rewriting the rule book as he's playing. It's absolutely amazing. That's great. So how, how did you guys go about picking the songs for what you guys were going to do for the podcast? There's a kind of standard repertoire for those hot club bands, uh, which is a lot of Django Reinhardt tunes and a lot of swing tunes from the era. But because we were in sort of 1942, we wanted to try and reflect a bit of the what we've just been talking about, the, the slight bebop influence and the swing influence, sort of Benny Goodman small band thing. So I've got a band called Profits of Swing who are myself and three other brilliant musicians. We've got Marcus Penrose on bass, Ross Hughes on clarinet, tenor and baritone, who's playing on the recording, and Christian Miller, who's an absolutely incredible guitarist. You've sort of drawn the short straw with me, Justin, unfortunately. <laughs> it's, I feel a bit like Angus Young in ACDC. Someone <laughs> once asked Angus Young, you know, his brother Malcolm Young, who was in ACDC as well and wrote a lot of the tunes, somebody once asked Angus Young, are you the best guitarist in the world? And he said, mate, I'm not even the best guitarist in ACDC. And uh, <laughs> yeah. I, I'm sort yeah. of a bit like that. So you've got the short straw with me. Christian's absolutely brilliant, but they're fantastic musicians. And so we kind of went through a lot of swing era tunes. I've worked with Pask a lot, he's very old pal. And so myself and Pask talked about basically things with different atmospheres because when you're doing soundtrack for something, it's not just about how pretty the tunes are or how strong the melody is or whatever. Obviously you're trying, this sounds obvious, but you're, you're trying to do something that evokes a certain feeling as well and might and that will yeah. you know advance the narrative and support the emotional beats of the story. What's the first song you landed on that sort of fits the emotional tone of the episode, but is also reminiscent of the time? I think It Had To Be You was the first one that we kind of felt, it's really well known It Had To Be You. People who don't even know jazz stuff know it because it's been used in so many movies yeah. and adverts and stuff. But it's such a beautiful, it's a lovely melody and it's kind of wistful and a little bit kind of melancholy at the same time. Do you know what I mean? It's got that lovely kind of yeah. ambiguous feel to it. And that that was a, I think The Man I Love as well for similar reasons, you know. I mean, it's really interesting, you know, Ed has a lot more knowledge than me about this sort of particular era of music, but it was quite interesting when he was sending me tracks. Quite often, you know, a track will have a very particular kind of introduction that may or may not really relate to how the rest of the tune pans out. And I remember you sent me a Django Dark Eyes yeah. thing, and it and it and of course, you know, with the subject matter of the podcast, yeah, it's important that we get this sense of you know clubs and people having a great time and swinging about in 1940s London. But the, you know, the 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 central current of this podcast is about a very awful series of murders mm. and about some pretty bleak 
lives and situations. So we had to kind of keep half an hour, like, even though, you know, my underscoring is m- more takes care of that side of the podcast. But I remember when you yeah, played me the, yeah. the, the intro to Dark Eyes, it had this sort of incredible kind of dark, exotic kind of yeah, feel. Um, yeah, yeah. And it's really, it's really interesting how an introduction to a tune can then just sort of be bounced out of the way and then yeah. the band kind of kicks yeah, off. Yeah, yeah. Now, it's an interesting tune, that, because it's, it's basically the gypsy, it's kind of the unofficial gypsy anthem. And you'll know it's really familiar. It's the one that goes... famous and it's again it's one of those when you play it in gypsy bands or i haven't got the right guitar for it at all but when you play in gypsy bands you play it a kind of up like that but as past said because it has inherently got this kind of major minor slightly ambiguous melancholic slightly almost sinister quality to it we did a thing where we did lots of bringing out the kind of um and then it just it floats then in a much more ambiguous place i think That's beautiful. Well, It Had to Be You was the first track that you guys landed on, so we should listen to that. Okay. This is your guys' rendition of it. Who who initially wrote the song, and who would you say had the most famous version of oh, it? She sure wrote it early on. Um, most famous version. That's hard, isn't it? I mean, I guess did for... Did Chet Baker do it? I mean, everyone did yeah, it. Isn't it? It's, it's one of those it, yeah. standards that everyone's done. I suppose for people, probably people now, it's probably Harry Connick, actually, because he did that version of it for the movie when Harry met, oh, yeah. Harry met Sally, which was huge, you know. Yeah. So it's probably yeah. Harry Connick. I'll have now. what he's having. Exactly. <laughs> that might be where I first Yeah, no, it, I think you know? it's... A, yeah. might be where I... I mean, what's incredible about these tunes is, uh, you know, and this is, again, I'm, I'm stating the obvious here, why are they called jazz standards, you know, but it, the malleability is extraordinary, the way yeah. you, can, you can take a tune, imbue it with, you know upbeat carefree romance and then you can choose to play it in a way that completely undercuts that and Mm -hmm. and the quick and dirty tricks that i've sometimes Mm -hmm. used in soundtracking is uh is really time stretching uh music or recordings of music particularly on the piano um i did this quite a lot in season one of bad women you know you, you time stretch the whole thing out and then and sync it in reverb and essentially you know even very optimistic sounding harmonies suddenly start to kind of swim around and develop a much more mysterious dark undertow and it's just yeah it's a testament to how these tunes can be pulled around and and they survive you know this incredible kind of of sophistication in the writing you know we were myself and pascal we've got a little thing that the little arrangement lady be good to play for you today just to serve us as a duet and we were looking at some ellington things and other stuff and especially with ellington like the the harmonic stuff you know the chords and the relationship between chords and melody and rhythm is so complex and so sophisticated Mm -hmm. but not in a flash 
showing off do you know what i mean it's like you the the tunes sound so beautiful and so simple it's only when you try and play them you're like god this is really hard you know because they sound so gorgeous that's why you know ellington was such a oh, genius arranger I mean, great you, you know, know him and a, billy strayhorn you know they were just yeah. both strayhorn incredible right, yeah, yeah yeah i mean we were you know things like take the atrium where you've got you know big sort of major chord and then the second chord has got this slightly crunchy you know Yeah, I mean, he's just, you know, and, and and a lot of the composers of that era, I mean, Ellington obviously being, in my opinion, the preeminent uh, jazz composer of, of all time, or preeminent composer of all time. But, you know, lots of those guys who were writing music then, Cole Porter and the Gershwins and stuff, it's like, yeah, there's a, there is a real sort of sophistication to the harmonic material that just makes it endlessly open to reinvention, you know. Absolutely. Well, let's listen to your rendition of It Had to Be You for Bad Women Season 2. Thank you. 
great oh, thank you who played sax on that that's ross hughes who's absolutely brilliant ross is a another old friend of myself and pascal's yeah. that we've both worked with a lot he's a brilliant composer and arranger and absolute i mean a proper multi-instrumentalist most of us we always co- refer to him as the real musician he's the real musician isn't he yeah <laughs> and it's funny like most musicians yeah. we all play a couple of things but we get kind of weaker as the circle goes out do you know what i mean sure. whereas ross is absolutely you know he's a fantastic clarinet player beautiful saxophone all the woodwinds he's a great piano player he's a lovely bass player he's a you know absolute multi-instrumentalist well, that's great. I mean, such a um, sultry tune. And yeah. I think for people listening who haven't heard Bad Woman yet, it, it'll be interesting for them to hear how that was yeah. used in the show. I mean, it's, I think with all of these, while we knew there was a certain function, you know, sometimes we just, we needed tunes to step up and be danceable and, and, uh, and give yeah. off uh, some of the, you know, the difficult optimism of the time. Though I was always when we were discussing sort of how to play them, I was always trying to push them towards the ambiguity and the melancholy if it was in there. In the arrangement. Yeah, yeah. And it resonates with the stories that we're hearing. You know, these are the, the episodes are littered with romances that go astray and, you know, and even the concept of something like, oh, lady, be good, you know, it, it strikes a big resonance with, with the way women were being treated and, and talked about and dealt with in those times. So... It's uh, yeah. If we that level of ambiguity, which I think does come through in that take, and I should say, you know, the, we were not after utterly perfect camera ready takes. If you see what I mean, that's I'm, I'm, I'm handy mashing, when you've yeah. got me in the band. Love, yeah, <laughs> I'm mashing yeah, up my terminology. You're looking for a little spontaneity. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's not going to be. Yeah. Um, you know, necessarily the perfect recording. Um, yeah, and that of, fitted of, the of and it's pop that, music of the day. You know, I think that's the thing. Like we, mm-hmm. you know, I'm you know so uh reverent about that music and about the those tunes and that time and when you talk to older musicians they had no idea that this stuff people would still be playing this stuff 50 60 100 years later do you know what i mean it's like a, yeah, I, mean, yeah. I, I think that yeah. strikes a really interesting you know the, the very broader theme in, in audio you know this idea that we've we have perfected things and then had to find ways of uh, reintroducing error and imperfection yeah, um, yeah you know which is a bit of a broader bigger philosophical point but it is it's really important this stuff doesn't sound like some ultra polished studio session yeah. that's dumped into and I, I mean a nightclub and then, and a really <laughs> i mean a, a ridiculous and extreme example of that is um Oh Johnny O, which we didn't we didn't record fully at all because what happens is about eight bars into it a bomb drops on a club. So oh, yeah, was and I literally had to yeah, it was like they the guys just started playing and I just yeah. walked in and said, Okay, a bomb has dropped right now, so you can stop, you know. <laughs> um this extraordinary scene where so you know, I knew I knew the sound design, I'd already done it, and it's like, yeah, I just need to hear you start this tune because a bomb is gonna drop. So you're saying this group is not like the uh, the, the Titanic band <laughs> playing as, a, playing, as yeah, a ship yeah. goes down. Should have done that. Yeah, we should. There's not that level of dignity. <laughs> no, 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 no. Yeah, I'd have been yeah, legging it for yeah. the exit, mate. Absolutely. Yeah. Straight <laughs> out, yeah. <laughs> what was the next tune you guys settled on? 
think after that it might have been Diner actually which is a really old standard mm. Diner's one that you'll hear on early Hot Club of France records Django and Stefan Grappelli recorded that tune a lot of times Louis Armstrong yeah Louis did it yeah 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 absolutely yeah no I mean it was a real it was again a, you know a sort of massive pop hit of the day um, that got reinvented by jazz musicians you know trying to get yourself into that mindset of this being pop you know absolutely, the pop music yeah. of the day isn't yeah, it it's yeah, a real yeah. it's it requires a real I wish it yeah stretch yeah. of the of absolutely. the imagination and that and you know and it, certainly the bebop movement you know was occupied a very you know now it's become this really rarefied thing that's taught in you know i went to university i did a jazz degree course it was just like that movie whiplash but less overrated and um <laughs> so I did, I did that and it was brilliant i mean we were, we had a, i liked that movie <laughs> we had a, well, i mean we had amazing teachers and you know they were brilliant incredible musicians and it was a really interesting experience and um, but they talk about this themselves the idea that that stuff is now taught in sort of conservatoires and whatever and, you know, it was total, it was complete outlaw music. It was rebel music of the time, do you know what I mean? It wasn't in any way socially acceptable. And the people that played it were viewed by, you know, sort of the media and the establishment of the 40s as in the way that gangster rappers were, were viewed in the 90s, do you know what I mean? They were viewed as these kind of scary, you know, ghetto people that were heroin addicts and would, you know, corrupt your children, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, very unfairly, yeah. obviously, because yeah. they were, you know, no, studious, right. yeah, 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 yeah. incredible musicians. But and that, you know, and that, and that's that's so hard to reach back and try yeah. and and, yeah, yeah. and try and kind of imagine that sentiment now, because the, you know, now sounds so sort of in some ways refined and yeah, totally. And uh, genteel. Well, in the way that hip hop has become very much pop music now, you know, when we were kids yeah, in the eighties and nineties, it wasn't, and now it's, you know, it, it's completely kind of mainstream pop so it's you know the, the same thing happens again doesn't it if we're being honest i'm sure jazz musicians especially in the bebop yeah. era were probably more ill-behaved some of them were completely some of them were you know, obviously not at all but yeah, some of them i think were, were very naughty yeah. boys and girls yeah. weren't they but, so. <laughs> let's check out you guys uh, version of the old standard dinah <laughs> Thank you. 
I like that yeah. ending. That's nice. So three endings for the price of one, that one. Yeah. When I was listening to that, really reminded me of something that I remember talking uh, to the band about on the day. And again, it goes back to this idea of creating music that sounds like it's belonging in a particular space and a place. I remember saying, and I don't know whether it was on this tune, but it kind of is relevant anyway. I remember saying, you know, you've got to imagine that you're playing and uh, there's people around you making a hell of a racket. I remember saying at one point, you've got to play as if people are basically ignoring you. And then everyone's sort We're of fell about. Yeah. We're jazz yeah. musicians. Yeah, we do that all the time. <laughs> but it's, you know, it's, yeah, it's like, um, it's trying to get that that spirit in. Because, you know, I know having played, you know, a bit in weddings and you name it, you know, when the way you play, it, it adjusts to the crowd to a degree. And so I really wanted to try and occasionally you know, get that feeling of the band, you know, about to maybe fall apart. It doesn't, it doesn't feel so in that, apart from that little end bit, which is really <laughs> nice. It's like, it's more or less like they've, they've kind of given up and thought, right, come on, let's get a drink. No one's listening, you know, and I really, I love that. <laughs> yeah, I love yeah. that about it because that felt very important to me to, you know, from the point of view of getting it to sit right under, you know, because I'm thinking I'm what I'm going to put over the top of this, which is a shame on one level because I'm covering it with people drinking and talking and, you know, the sound of this, that and the other. But on another level, yeah, it's about how can we um, how can we make this really sit right in the dramatic situation. And, and on yet another level, that, that feels like the appropriate place to be. Yeah. That's yeah. the appropriate yeah, totally. setting. Yeah, to be yeah, yeah, it really Absolutely, is, yeah. yeah. I have um, to say, uh, listening back to that, I haven't listened to that uh, tune for a little bit. And Marcus, the bass player, Marcus Penrose, absolutely sterling job of holding everything together. Yeah, there. He's, he's such like, a, he's like mummy, basically. He's, he's, he's amazing. Yeah, he's, he totally is. You sort of cling to Marcus. He's got such a strong rhythmic drive, and he's so brilliant with forms. He's always absolutely right on yeah. it. You know. That idea of fighting too for the audience, mm. I feel like, is something that's mm-hmm. lost. You know, this, I, I think that's sort of why jazz is sort of regarded in the sort of rarefied sure, air now. Yeah. This idea that yeah. it's to be played and the and you know yeah. with, with 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 you know an audience who's deadly quiet. Yeah, we clap yeah. after the solo. after every. Yeah, yeah you have right, to clap yeah. after the solo. And yeah, clap and then, It's like, well, maybe maybe you should earn yeah, the yeah, yeah, you know, and yeah. maybe and maybe you should earn yeah, the. Yeah, I was I was always um, fascinated um, by the jazz cafe in london i'm mm. you know i'm talking about it 20 30 years ago now but i remember when it you know when it was done up they had this on the wall above the stage they had stfu during performances thanks yeah, yeah. and that meant shut the fuck up yeah. during performances and it's like so that's, a, that's an interesting vibe to kind is, of set yeah. up in a jazz club you know do you know what the the effort yeah. in brixton if you're ever in london justin you have to go to the effort tavern in brixton because there's an incredible set of musicians who play there led by a guy called Alan Weeks who's a British Caribbean uh, guitar player he played in loads of reggae bands in the 70s and 80s and incredible jazz guitar player and they just set up in the corner of the pub and they just play and it's yeah. this kind of it's brilliant isn't it it's, it's a proper sort of raucous gig where people come to drink and dance and to have a good time and you know and they play all these tunes they play all the the old standards and all that stuff but they also mix it up with playing ska tunes and reggae things and James Brown and kind of funk stuff and it's just it's really interesting how they yeah, they absolutely, uh, they've got great integrity as musicians, but they absolutely make it accessible as well. And I think that's... Uh, yeah, and actually sort of weird, sort of strangely tangentially related to that is the business of doing music in within podcasts. You know, it's yeah. like there's almost always a voice happening in a podcast for obvious reasons. And that voice is bang center, center stage, you know. So it's like... If you were writing music for a film or even for like a radio drama or something, it's conceivable that you would have 
the stage to yourself for a little period Absolutely, of time. Yeah, um, yeah. But that really very rarely happens in a podcast. Yeah. You might get you might get a little sniff of it when you when the um, narration at the top of the podcast makes way for the theme. And it's really interesting. It's a really interesting challenge that about how to make music that will that can coexist with a speaking voice that is pretty much always there. And so I do remember, you know, there's at times when people were doing these sort of amazing solos and I just thought, that's great to have in the can, uh, <laughs> yeah. but I'm going to need a sort of slightly paired Yeah, something less version. interesting. You need a less yeah, interesting version. which is a real shame. Version. I mean, it yeah, sounds yeah. awful to put it in those no, terms. No, but that's but, the gig, you know, isn't it? Yeah, that's it is, the job. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, and I think that's the same. You're dead right podcast even more so than other things. But even when you're scoring music for theatre or film or whatever, sometimes a really interesting bit of music is the last thing you need. So that's why, you know, the Jaws music or whatever, those iconic things that are just like two or three notes you know are so brilliant because they underpin the emotional and the narrative beats of the story in such a great way you know yeah they they exist in the in the spaces around and uh yeah i'm kind of really fascinated by how music is absorbed in these sort of situations Mm -hmm. i mean honestly um i it would you would be horrified if if you took some (laughs) of the cues out of you know the shows and just listen to them in in absolute isolation because um, that you know they're designed to work alongside a voice, and it, and and the listener kind of goes in and out of it. They don't. They're not. They're not locking onto it. So, Absolutely. Yeah. I don't know why I thought of that. Just because we were talking, we we ended up in that area of you know people talking over music. But it's an interesting kind of correlation. I wonder if we should play the Gershwin tune next. You guys did a version of "Man I Love." We did. Yep. Anything you want to say about it before I play it? No, I think if you play it and then we can... Play it, yeah, because uh, particularly as it'll stick it back in my head. Yeah. <laughs> okay, let's give a listen. One, two, one, two, three. Oh, yeah, we're both playing acoustic guitar on this, actually. Yeah, you hear that, you hear that mm. sort of texture. Yeah. Thank you. 
Nice performance. Very nice. Yeah, that's Very bringing, nice that brought back some really interesting memories for me, actually, because, uh, you know, we spoke a little bit about the idea of reintroducing fragility and error. And that was a really good case of that, actually, because I'd, I'd heard the Billie Holiday version of that tune, and I really wanted to capture that sense of kind of just this idea almost that you would start, you would go to sing or speak and it might, it just might not come out. It might not work, you know. And I remember when on the first take, you know, Ross, who's playing the clarinet on that, you know, just gave this beautiful but very sort of confident performance. And I was like, can, you know, can you possibly sort of play that as a little bit more as if, you know, this just might not work? You know, can you, can you make it much, much, much more fragile? Uh, and I think he really nailed that. Yeah, and, um, no, he really did. And uh, yeah, and again, you know, that ending that was completely spur of the moment, I, I was sort of on my feet and thinking, actually, it could be quite interesting to have the band just kind of dissipate and end up just on the bass. And so, so that's, you know, it's a real case there of kind of thinking from an underscoring point of view in terms of where this is going to end up, that's just a quick idea that I had and thought might be useful, but... It's interesting because it makes mm. it makes that ending a very particular <laughs> thing, you yeah, know. Yeah, definitely. And it chimes with the sort of loneliness and the yeah. kind of you know, yeah, that solitary voice. It's like, yeah. But it was, yeah, it was an inter- It just really reminded me of that of trying to get to that level mm-hmm. of um, almost breaking down fragility, yeah, yeah. basically. Good instincts because it really felt that way, and I think it really was a, a nice performance of that songs. Yeah, and, and you know, a testament again to how all these tunes can be clothed in so many different ways totally, you know yeah, yeah. there's a way of playing that that makes it sound bulletproof I absolutely imagine, yeah you know? yeah and you can play that <laughs> yeah. there's a frank vignola amazing uh, american guitar player really kind of up-tempo version of that that makes it sound really sort of joyous and yeah, you know yeah, yeah. a real sort of celebration but yeah when you play it like that and again you know props to marcus penrose you know the bass playing on that's so beautiful because you know it's a hard role being a bass player in a band like this where there's no drummer basically because obviously you know normally in a if it's a piano trio or a bigger band the bass player and the drummer lock in together and you know the bass player is underpinning the harmonic movement and the melodic things but they're also you know reinforcing with the drummer the rhythmic drive of the tune and without drums or percussion you know that role is is basically like Marcus on his own a lot of the time. You know sometimes if I'm if myself or Christian are doing the you know the the very strict four in the bar thing, you know that's slightly different. But obviously we were sort of dropping in and out of doing that on yeah. that tune, and yeah, 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 Marcus really kind of keeps that keeps the game alive. You know, but that's really it's really valuable though because. Um drums again speaking voice uh, you have to work quite hard yeah, you have to find the right sorry, spaces yeah. you have to yeah. um whereas this band yeah. in, in that format can yeah. kind of just sit underneath the voices yeah and, um, and because we were trying to keep it kind of you know we weren't slavishly trying to recreate um you know i mean Billy. Could, you know django right yeah. and play like that we put a gun to my head but um you know we were we were trying to do something with that sort of setup so you know two guitars bass and then various lead reed instruments well and that that would have been what a a pretty standard setup in a yeah i mean the django the hot club thing is as i said earlier is two rhythm guitars uh one lead guitar double bass and then usually violin or later clarinet and saxophone you know why so the lack of drums was that what fed that i mean i think it's a very european thing again i think it because you know, Django and those guys were coming out of... Yeah, and they were coming out of playing 
what we now think of as kind of gypsy folk music do you know mm. what i mean mm. where it was a lot of lot of guitars a lot of cymbal uh violin so it was mostly stringed instruments really you know yeah. so i think that's where that came from and then of course he was you know hugely influenced as everyone who's ever tried to play jazz was and still is by lewis armstrong you know yeah. so he was taking some of those rhythmic and melodic ideas that Louis Armstrong was playing on trumpet and literally yeah. transposing them to the guitar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The last number you guys did, I, f I found a new baby. I know from the Benny yeah, Goodman yeah, yeah. rendition yeah. that has That's a great, right. I mean, probably outside of Flying yeah, Home or yeah. Solo Flight, yeah. one of my, my favorite oh, Charlie Christian yeah. guitar yeah, solos. Amazing. Yeah, how did you guys land on this one? Well, again, we were just trying to think of other things that were popular at the time uh, that a lot of bands would have been playing. Uh, and again, things with a sort of interesting harmonic sequence. Because again, I found a new baby's got that, as a lot of those tunes have got that slight thing where it's kind of, you know, minor, dominant, and resolves to this kind of pretty major thing, you know. So it's got again, it's got both both elements, and uh, I think I mean that's one of the things Ed was brilliant at in terms of you know because uh, I bow to his much greater knowledge of this area of music, but he he completely locked on to the fact that even when we we're in doing an up tempo number like this, it had to contain that little seed of ambiguity. There's that little little element of pain, you know. That's yeah, all. yeah. Uh, and he was very good at spotting tunes that would carry that, or I just have a little bit of grit in the oyster, I suppose you could say, harmonically at least. Let's listen to your guys' version. I found a new baby before we get out of here.
Ooh, another 1K ending. Ooh, <laughs> nice. That was nice. Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, I do like, I love a 1K ending. I should say there's like, there's, there's, there's this massive sea of music that, you know, we could have picked from. And I know that Ryan, our glorious executive producer, had uh, this huge playlist. He'd so imbibed the music of the era. I mean, I, he actually sent me the playlist on Spotify and I, it was, it was horrific. It was like <laughs> literally, I think it, I, if I'd started listening to it when he sent it to me, I would be way past retirement by the time I got <laughs> to the end of it. But it was a testament to just how much he'd kind of soaked up this music. And he basically, I think, brought the goalposts in and said, like, this is this is the kind of tune and this is the area we need to be in. Which is so, you know, that and that for us is brilliant. And, and you know, yeah, it was a lovely uh, thing to do to be able to play that music not in a kind of trying to slavishly recreate what's gone before, but trying to keep, yeah, like you say, the sort of emotional and uh, uh, narrative beats of the show going while still trying to actually honour that music was was a lot of fun. I mean, um, at that point, Ryan was across the, who's the the exec producer on the show and and the writer and everything else. Um, He's across the whole kind of narrative arc of it. So, uh, there are things I just didn't know about the show that he would be able to kind of lead into. So he uh, he definitely, uh, he basically dumped us in the right ballpark and then let us play around in it. <laughs> <laughs> well, you guys mentioned you have a uh, a live rendition of a song you, you can do for us. Do. We, yeah. Do, we put well. this together for you this afternoon, Justin, in about Live or semi-dead. Like, yeah. <laughs> Undead. Let's go. One take, One take. Let's do one take. We thought, you know, it'd be daft not to... <laughs> yeah, we thought we should do something like yeah. oh, yeah. I didn't play on the session, so now you get exposed to my... Now we get Pascal, Pascal, Pascal on trombone. Uh, trombone. I just need to have a little bit of a warm-up. What are you guys going to do? We're going to do the old Gershwin standard, Oh, Lady Be Good, which I believe is from a musical. I'm not sure. Some long-forgotten yeah. Broadway show, yeah. Let's see what happens. Okay. Can you count us in, please, Edward? A one, a two, a one, two, three, four. Thank you. 
Pascal and Ed, thank you so much. And uh, music's Thanks, beautiful. Justin. Thank Bye-bye you, Justin. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. Musora is your access to online music lessons for guitar, piano, drums, and singing. This is your chance to reignite some old musical passions or pick up an instrument for the first time. Connect with more than 100 of the world's best teachers and musicians. You'll get seven days totally free to try it out. And then it's just $30 a month, less than a single private lesson. I mean, why do we do Broken Record? Not just because we love hearing from great musicians. We do it because we think that there is something beautiful about the appreciation of music. Don't you think we need more of that in our lives these days? That's the mission of Musora to inspire, educate, and connect musicians. Enjoy unlimited personal support, weekly live streams, student lesson plans. It's like having a personal music teacher, only much, much better. Just go to musora.com, M-U-S-O-R-A.com, to start a new musical journey today. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there.